Hello, and welcome to the Layoffs Dopamine Hit episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, joined by Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And this week we are talking about work, what's happened to work, how it works, layoffs, hiring, radical candor, all manner of stuff. We're going into the workplace and we have a very, very special guest to join us um, and explain what the hell is going on and why layoffs are really not so great after all. Imagine that. Um, Mr. Kevin Delaney, welcome. Thank you, Felix. Yeah, so you you are a former manager of Emily Peck. Going way back, yeah. Yes, Going true. way back. Um, you didn't hire me at Quartz, but, like, <laughs> it, was, it was a close-run thing. Um, how... Introduce yourself. What are you up to now? Yeah, so I'm the the co-founder and editor of a company called Charter, and we're a media and research company that focuses on issues around work, making workplaces better, more fair. And we work with, we have a media activity, we have a, a newsletter that with a pretty big circulation that's free, and then we also provide companies with research and best practices around the workplace challenges that they're wrestling with. But still at heart, you're a journalist, right? Oh, yeah. I write so much, Felix. You'd be, <laughs> you'd be, you'd be proud of me. We, um, you know, we, we don't have CEOs on, Kevin. Like that, they just come on and they talk their book and it's all ridiculous. So we, we have to at least pretend that for the purposes of this podcast, you're a journalist. I'm editor-in-chief of Charter. There I, you go. I also contribute to other publications, including Time, where I have an article on uh, layoffs and how people get them wrong. We are going to talk about that article right in this next segment coming up on Slate Money. So, Kevin, why I wanted you to come on the show today is because you have this great piece in Time Magazine out, and you're essentially arguing that layoffs are not necessary can you tell us some more about that? Yeah. So when you look at that, what we've seen is that tech companies, particularly the big tech companies, have laid off a lot of workers. Layoffs.fyi has tallied it at around over 275,000 workers layoffs that have been announced by, by tech companies alone um, this year and last year. So a lot of companies, you know, we're seeing Meta and uh, and Microsoft and all these companies laying off tens of thousands of workers. But when you look at what the academic research says about layoffs, and there's a, a fair over the last 30 years following the uh, the mass layoffs of the 1990s inspired by Jack Welch at GE and others, what the academic research at, that has been done suggests is that layoffs don't deliver the benefits that CEOs claim they deliver when they're undertaking them, at least not consistently. So you... Um, you lay off people because you want to save money. Uh, you lay off people because you want to improve the performance of the company. Uh, you lay off people maybe because you want to boost your stock price. And what the research suggests is that that's not, those things are not consistently true. And that actually in instances where the company performance is improved by shedding staff, uh, at best it takes three years to see those benefits. These stock pops that we're seeing when Zoom and others 
are laying off people and the, the shares are jumping 10% in a day. Um, the research suggests that they're not necessarily sustained over time. And when researchers have looked at companies that have done mass layoffs and their peers who haven't trying to normalize for all the things you'd want to normalize for, it suggests that they don't actually perform better. Um, among the reasons for that is that workers who are left are generally overworked and demoralized. So things like absences, latenesses, all of these things that affect customer service and the performance of the company actually are pretty negatively impact, impacted by doing mass layoffs. So I would, I would not say that layoffs are never necessary, but I would say that the claims and the pretenses under which a lot of these big companies that are immensely profitable are engaging them are actually not consistently borne out, that they deserve some more inspection. So, so Kevin, this research that you've been aggregating, how much of it is related to, like, what I would think of as zerpy layoffs. Like we've been in this long period of zero interest rates where it costs nothing to borrow money and hire people and where people, especially in the tech industry, were expecting, you know, enormous growth for years to come. And you're a company like Meta or Stripe or whoever, and you're like, or a firm, and you see some hockey stick going up and to the right and you're like i need to hire a whole bunch of people in order to be able to cope with this growth that is inevitably going to be happening next year and the following year and then when the growth fails to materialize you're like shit now i've got nothing for these people to do i better get rid of them um is that um is that a reasonable way of explaining what yeah. we saw in this round of layoffs and does that is that type of layoff something that you've been looking at? Yeah, I think that that, you, so, so you're right. The context is that these tech companies hired enormous amounts of people over the last few years for reasons that you said there, there are little consequences for doing so. And they were projecting, you know, infinite demand uh, growth for their products. So, um, so the layoffs are a fraction of the overall expansion of their staffs over the last a uh, few years. So that that is right. Um, I would say on the other side of it, though, is that the demographic pressures and other labor market pressures, which we're still seeing, the labor market still relatively tight, even as it softens, um, these companies presumably need will need to continue growing their staff if they have any growth at all. And I think it's easy to assume that you know, companies in these industries are going to continue growing at some reasonable late rate. Uh, the reason that uh, they they will need staff and they probably will have continued challenges hiring people is because birth rates are low, immigration, skilled immigration, especially to the U.S., has been, you know, virtually um, cut off. Um, and so um, and so I guess the the I agree with you that there's been this big expansion um, but I don't think that laying off people is necessarily the right answer. And what we're seeing is that some companies, you know, some companies that we're talking to at Charter, for example, are looking at other approaches to this. So they're using things like furloughs or they're retraining people and shifting them to other parts of the company. There are alternatives to layoffs, particularly if you like look out beyond this quarter or these six months and think like, oh, actually, I'm going to need some skilled workers that these people might 
you know, arguably um, be down the before. So too I long. have I have two questions about that. The first one is when you said like presumably they're going to need more workers um, at some point, which you know if you're running a hotel company and you're expecting to open up a bunch of new hotels then yeah like it stands to reason you're going to need more workers to run those new hotels but isn't the whole point of technology companies in silicon valley more broadly is that they build scalable platforms and that as they grow they can grow much faster than their headcount would suggest because once you've written a piece of software you can ship that software to a million people as easy as you can to a thousand people like why where does this presumably come from if you're google say like why is it a solid presumption that revenue growth is going to imply a need for more headcount i think what you just said is the like academic theoretical silicon valley 2000 five like idea of how a tech company <laughs> operates no offense <laughs> yeah but... i'm not saying i believe it but you know I, I do need to push back somehow <laughs> no but the truth is that as we know that like these companies actually require human beings to operate you just look at twitter so twitter has dramatically reduced its staff under the the um you know the reign of elon musk and uh and, you know, they had an outage during the Super Bowl, which is the biggest revenue moment of the year. They have continuous performance outages. And Musk and his, and his you know, his crew will blame it on the, the previous uh, engineers. We have the European Union now going to Twitter and saying, we're actually concerned that you're not going to be able to comply with moderation laws because you don't have the staff to actually uh, comply with these with the with legal content moderation requirements in Europe, and so, um, you know, theoretically, you write a piece of software once, and then it scales infinitely, and you never have to hire anybody else. But the truth of how a lot of these businesses operate is, it requires moderation, it requires sales, it requires customer service, it requires engineers to um, to fix things that are um, that are, you know, that are broken or stretched by having more users. I, I don't personally believe the theory that you just shared. Felix. Elizabeth, can you can you share the story of Pookle Blinky? <laughs> <laughs> the first tweet says, it may surprise people to learn that I am a Twitter employee. I make $156,000 a year and I've literally done nothing. Check deposits in my bank account. No one seems to know what my job is or who my boss is. And so this guy claims that he has a job at Twitter and then everybody above him got laid off and everyone in HR got laid <laughs> off and all of the payment processing is happening automatically. So he can't find the people who he's supposed to be reporting to and he's just spending the money and kind of waiting for someone to find him. It's like the dream scenario opposite of the guy in office <laughs> space, you know, with the stapler in the basement not getting paid. It's like the stapler in the basement set free and getting Yeah, he's paid like, yeah, I've never been life. onboarded. I've never got code base, code base access. I don't even have an email account, but I am getting money in my bank account. <laughs> the thing about, you know, I think that a lot of these companies claim to be these like utopian campuses where people got free massages and lived their best lives. And like 
kind of what we're seeing these days is they're dy- dystopian. Like that, what you just described is like, I guess maybe it's somebody's utopia, but it sounds to me like a dystopian kind of example of a business where you don't know who your manager is and, and whether you're still working for the company. You look at the the layoffs that took place at Alphabet slash Google, and you know they came in the middle of the night and people were locked out of every possible system and they fired people who were on maternity or parental leave. They, um, some people didn't actually only got learned that they were fired by email. When you look across the tech industry, the layoffs have, have disproportionately hit people who were uh, working in diversity, equity, and inclusion roles. Uh, that's not to mention all the people who are on uh, employment visas, H-1B visas, who got these notices with no support. And then they have to scramble because there's a very limited period of time before they have to actually exit the United States with their family upon, you know, if they don't quickly get another job, which is basically impossible given the, the time frame. So I think, you know, it was meant to be this great utopian thing where you, um, and I, I really think what we're seeing is this kind of dystopia play out. And, and I think that these CEOs should be held accountable for this. Like this you is not. They should be this laid is off. So when you when you, wait well, when you is... say held accountable, <laughs> what what's what's the condign yeah. punishment for overhiring and then or not overhiring and just laying a lot of people off? I think it's a smokescreen. You know that they're saying like, oh, we hired too many people. We need to we're, suddenly we're going to be efficient, and so we need to lay off tens of thousands of people. These. CEOs made a lot of other decisions as well that had negative consequences. So Mark Zuckerberg should, they should, should fire himself, basically. Yeah, um, probably like years ago, <laughs> but that, but I'm not holding my breath. I, I, I do like, have a, like, I, I feel like there's an implicit assumption, and you've made it quite explicit in what you just said, that layoffs are very bad for the people being laid off. And certainly... We all have vivid memories of 2008, 2009, 2010, um, when that was undoubtedly the case. And you would have people getting laid off and then they would not be able to find another job. You saw the numbers in the employment report every month of like people who've been unemployed for more than 26 weeks going up and up and up and up. And that kind of long-term unemployment is just brutal and terrible. But that's a macro phenomenon. And if you look anecdotally at the tech employees who are being laid off, you know, the people who got laid off from Twitter invariably seem to find better paying jobs within a week or two. Um, You mentioned the H-1B holders, which as someone who was actually laid off from a U.S. job while on an H-1B, I know this this situation personally very well. is actually much better now than it was back then. When I was laid off from my H-1B in 2001, um, I was out of status immediately, like day off. Now you have like six months. And especially given that most of these people are software engineers and there is, it is actually incredibly easy for software engineers to find a job and there is a mechanism for transferring your H-1B from the old employer to the new employer. I'm not saying it's wonderful. I'm, it does create stress and you are worried about what if I don't find a job. But objectively speaking, in the age of the great resignation, when we've had millions of people quitting their jobs voluntarily, 
are layoffs really as harmful as they historically have been? Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, also, look I mean, at, I mean, look at Twitter. The, you have people getting one month severance. And if you're a very senior employee, it's going to take you more than four weeks sure, to so find you, a new job. Yeah. And, uh, Just the, the interview process right, so you, alone. You lose and a month's income, yeah. right, or two or three. Like, it's, you know... It's not great. But it's not just the the people laid off, as Kevin, you know, writes in the timepiece. It's the people left behind. And it's the the scales falling from everyone's eyes about what these companies are, which maybe that's for the best. You know, there's all these pieces and tweets from uh, I just have to call it Google. There's all these pieces and tweets from Google employees, you know, saying, I, I thought Google was my family or whatever. And you're like, no, oh, no, no. But, I mean, to be left behind after layoffs, I think the whole company takes a big hit for a long time, in addition to the hits that the laid-off workers take. Yeah, Kevin, you make a point in your piece about the fact that some of these layoffs happen because people are driven by this short-term idea of shareholder value, and they just need to have a good earnings call soon. Um, you know, given that, what, what do you do about these misaligned incentives where companies are doing things that are detrimental to long-term health just because they need a short-term bump in stock price? I think it's a really it's a really awesome question, and I think that it's one that you know our American uh, society continues to wrestle with. You know, we as much as we. Um, you believe that we've made progress in terms of treating workers with dignity, um, paying people fairly, having a less unequal society. Uh, Investors reward CEOs for laying off people. They penalize them for for raising wages in terms of their stock price. And so I think that uh, the only possibility is is if we can find ways for uh, CEOs to have more have more um, structural and other reinforcement that they that they need to look after workers and that our democratic project requires them to not get the short-term dopamine hits from layoffs and and um, keeping, preventing people from having living wages. I wonder if one of the solutions is to just go, I mean, <laughs> to just go full socialist. Like part of the problem with getting <laughs> that, that laid would off is be that the Emily's solution, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So well part of the problem with getting laid off is like so much of your life depends on your job in in the United States. Your healthcare depends on your job, right? Probably that's the biggest thing. So if healthcare was nationalized, that would be so much less stressful if we had better unemployment benefits, social insurance, all the whole process of getting laid off would be less stressful and and would ultimately be less cruel on the company's part because it's not as bad. Right. And that's what we saw during the pandemic when unemployment insurance was massively expanded and upsized and you had an eviction moratorium. And those two things between them basically made the cost of getting laid off sometimes negative. Like you could actually wind up earning yeah. more money when you were laid off than when you were, when you had a job. And at that point, layoffs are painless. Um, yeah. You know, we, there has always been the case that, you know, people love to say, oh, yeah, getting fired was the best thing that ever happened to me. 
Um, and you do hear that over and over again. There are very, that you know, there aren't that many people who you kind of say, who you listen to, who say, "I had this great job and then I got laid off and it's been horrible ever since." It does happen. That's peop- That's how people are. They're like, you know what? My father dying was the best <laughs> thing because I learned a hard truth. You know, everyone's <laughs> trying to spin their lives and make everything the best thing that ever happened to them, or everything happens for a reason. But that's just like. Well, we have like a Protestant idea that suffering yeah. builds character. So there's a tendency to spin for our own mental health um, that these things like are Like I've gotten laid think, off from some good jobs. Yeah, I feel like em- Emily it. feels it because she had she was working for the phone company and that was great. <laughs> the benefits were amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I do think, Felix, though, that you, under us, you understate the emotional, psychological impact of, um, of being laid off. Um, and Can I we have a first-person story know, here, should... Kevin? Tell me, tell me about the last time you got fired. I had a very, like, very rough early part of my career, and I was laid off twice and made to reapply for my job a third time in a what? period of like two years. Um, and so I started like very early, you know, and, and the stakes were lower for me because I didn't have a family and you know, was at the beginning of my career and could fall back on my parents. And, um, but, but I would say that it, that it is like a, you know, it ranks up there with among the more traumatic experiences of my life. The research shows that for a lot of people being laid off has significant, uh, health, mental health and lifetime earnings, negative impacts Felix, I think what you're saying is exactly right, that that is more true in moments where the it's not as easy to, to rebound and, um, and get another job. But I don't think the negative impact is zero in this moment. And I think you're understanding It's always that. bad. And, and, and Emily's yeah. absolutely right, that when you know, we live in a society where we define ourselves by our job, you know, it's like the first thing you get asked when you meet someone new. It's like, hey, what do you do? Um, you know, that your entire personal identity gets involuntarily stripped from you. And that's deeply unpleasant. We should talk more about this broader way that work is changing after this break. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Another reason I wanted to have Kevin on is because we could really dig into how work has changed um, since the pandemic. Beyond, you know, yes, more people are working remotely or in hybrid arrangements, but that's like just the beginning of it. There's so many ripple effects from this, it seems like almost minor, but it's major change. Um, There's a baby boom, maybe a mini baby boom. As a result of more people working from home, there are empty office buildings in cities around the country. There are, um, what else? How else is remote work changing our lives? Yeah, no, I think that, um, among like just to just to take those things like the the family composition we had a, a this mini baby bump that we saw last year it's unclear if that's something that's going to be sustained but it, it seems pretty intuitive that the idea that people are working more uh, remotely and hybrid and generally like more caregiver friendly arrangements is leading people to feel like they can have babies real estate implications are very clear we have the downtown commercial real estate areas of um, those economies are not what they were. The suburban uh, demand for larger homes because you're working at home actually seems to um, have picked up significantly. Um, You have uh, municipal uh, tax bases, which and things like uh, revenue for subways are challenged by these changing patterns and you just have a overall you have a distribution of jobs and talent across the country that you know is still is still playing out so so one of the things that emily and i have been talking about at axios a bit is this question of managers in particular availing themselves of the opportunity to work from home. And the first reaction that most people have is, oh, well, the, you know, the bosses are, you know, being hypocrites because they're saying, like, I can work from home while you don't have to. But I think if you turn it upside down, something interesting is happening, which is that people are actually seeking out certain types of managerial jobs in ways that they might not have done in the past precisely because they those people can now now feel that they can do them and stay at home a bit more and there is a broader range of people who are entering those managerial jobs and are wanting to do those managerial jobs speaking of someone who's never been a manager and never wants to be a manager you know like <laughs> i feel like there's there's a kind of God there's forbid. a kind of assumption um in a lot of the in a lot of the way that work is written about that that you know everyone wants a promotion and everyone wants to you know wind up climbing climbing the corporate ladder and i don't think that's true and 
And maybe work from home is changing that a bit and making more people think, oh, that's a job I'm interested in. I don't buy that. <laughs> oh, you don't, you don't buy what? <laughs> that, that your theory. I think more managers work from home because they're older and they have nicer, bigger houses. They're part of that wave of people who moved to the suburbs, you know, during COVID because they needed the space and they have kids. So managers are, they need to work from home more. Whereas like rank and file, maybe they're younger and they don't have those constraints and they're more willing to go to the office. Maybe the office is nicer than where they live or something like that. And they live closer to the office because they haven't made the fateful step of moving. Yeah. There might be a, a kind of class of worker who considers taking on a job with more responsibility and managerial level responsibilities uh, in this scenario simply because they have kids or before now, you know, the commute was made the whole thing untenable. Um, but I think generally speaking, if you were already in a managerial job, you know, I'm not sure work from home really changes the way you think about your responsibilities that much. I like your theory, Felix, but I do think that what what we're seeing is that middle manager jobs are are pretty objectively the worst jobs in most organizations <laughs> these days. If you if you look at any survey of is this person thriving at work, you know, are there levels of burnout, levels of engagement, like all of those things that you could look at, the people with the most like red sirens going off next to their next to their job titles are middle managers. And it's because work is more complicated because you have to figure out like what is how do you manage a flexible workforce? What does performance look like? How do I retain people? How do I look after people's well-being? Lots of questions that managers haven't expected to answer. Um, and you and and you have higher expectations of workers for what companies are doing for them. Those don't they may like rebound on the CEO and executives, but but you know more often they rebound on the middle manager who is like kind of struggling to hold it all together. Generally, is not particularly supported or trained to do their job. They were good at doing something else, and so they were they were told they could get a a, a raise if they, in addition to that, started managing people. So I like I like the theory of what you're saying, Felix, and it'd be like. Awesome if more people are drawn to middle management by the <laughs> by the prospect of being able to, you know, hang out with their kids and walk their dogs because they're working from home. But I think those jobs are are really vital and they're really um, they're really quite hard jobs these days. Do you think that in terms of the sort of perennial balance that faces any middle manager between managing up and managing down, that the great resignation and the hybrid work revolution has increased the difficulty and necessity of managing down. And that is now the, the key part of that job in a way that maybe it wasn't pre-pandemic. Pre That's a good question. I want to know this. I would say yes. I mean, I think that, um, that workers, you know, we have taken all sorts of like detours through this idea of great resignation and other things. But the truth is that workers have expectations for their jobs. There are different reasons for this, uh, what jobs provide them. And those 
expectations fall on their managers. We have a lack of government services to Emily's earlier point about socialism for to support people for things like mental health and childcare and just basic um, health and you know who who needs to to have a, a performing uh, set of employees like you need to you need to wade into those areas that probably uh, managers didn't traditionally um, want to to wade into. So I would say that the the component of being more hands on and engaged with your workers, managing down as you put it, is is like is vital right now for this whole new world of work to actually function. And and it's hard. It's not easy. I mean, this is another thing that has happened during the pandemic, right? Is the stigma has been taken out of mental health issues. The people are much e- much more open about like, yeah, I'm having, I'm suffering from burnout. I have like, you know, whatever mental issues in the same way that no one's embarrassed about I stubbed my toe and I can't walk into work today, right? It's it's just we we've seen this in the um, in the way that Prince Harry's memoir has been sitting on to- atop the bestseller list forever and is like the biggest, fastest selling book of all time. You know, people are embracing the fact that there is a broad range of mental health out there, and that employers in particular need to be able to deal with a broad range of mental health. And I think, on some level need to be able to deal with the fact, especially in Silicon Valley, that you're going to have a broad range of sort of people skills, even in middle management. I think I think that is true. And I think actually that among the positive things that come out of the last few years is a, a more open conversation about things like people's mental health, things like their working styles, and that Part of the you know net result is that there have been more awareness and accommodation and accessibility um, as a result of that because we've had to like kind of go back to square one when we're doing meetings on Zoom and not in person and then that makes you think like oh some people don't actually talk or some people would prefer to write or some people actually would benefit from having the agenda ahead of time because they feel more able to contribute to these discussions if they actually are able to process a little bit what we're talking about. So I think that that has been a real positive. These companies um, feel like they need to do something. In some cases, they have activist investors. In some cases, they might as well. They feel like they, you know, the truth is that they've made lots of mistakes and bad investments and bad business decisions. And But the easy way to like suddenly, you know, distract from that or or um, offset that is to do layoffs. And, you know, maybe your legal department is telling you, well, like, or your security team or whatever, like, we should lay off people by email and do it in the middle of the night and then completely lock them out and, and like, forget to, you know, have a human being ever have a conversation with them. So I think, I think it's something different than what you're suggesting. Yeah, I wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times about why companies should not lay people off in mass via email. And I got a lot of pushback, particularly from tech people who kept insisting that if you're doing a mass layoff, that this is the only way to do it at scale and still have you know security measures in place. What, what do you think about that argument? 
I mean, that that argument is probably a legitimate argument, but what was true and what we know to be the case is that some of these companies laid people off um, by, at, by email and then a, a human being never, presumably the, the employees who were laid off had managers, had human managers, um, and those human managers never took the time to actually follow up and discuss with the human being who had been let go by some automated system the conditions of their layoff and their future in the in society. And so, um, you know, maybe maybe there are ways it, like some companies do it better than others. We know this. And some companies take the time. And when they're when they're laying off people, they actually look at performance factors. They have conversations with people. These layoffs are not surprises. They're, you know, the big companies actually have done layoffs a lot better than what we've seen. I feel like I feel like at various points in the in the cycle, both Airbnb and Stripe have announced layoffs and have generally been praised for the ways that they for the way that they did them. And they're like, we don't like getting laid off and it's not good to have layoffs, but we didn't we did it relatively well. And to your original point, probably in a lot of these cases, doing a huge number of like a five, you know, four or five figure number of layoffs on exactly the same day or exactly the same week, that's surely not necessary, right? You can spread this out over a little bit of amount of time if it takes if you need to spend a bit of time per laid off employee and have them talk to a human being and you have a finite number of human beings who can have that conversation then just take your time like it's it's fine to do that i've been at those companies too and that's kind of for everyone in the new like there's no work gets done for the week that the <laughs> slow moving layoffs are happening everyone's just like oh god is it is it my turn? Is it my turn? If your manager says, can I talk to you for a second? You're like, it's my turn. <laughs> and then they just say, what are your vacation plans? And you're like, oh. <laughs> Let's have another ad break. All right, we have we have one more segment, Kevin, and we need to talk about the technology stack, the way that everything is now intermediated via Zoom and Slack and Teams and Google Meet and Notion and uh, who knows what else. And it used to be that we had to stay on top of email, and I don't know anyone who even manages to stay on top of their email anymore. Emily, are you overwhelmed by modern technology? I'm okay, Felix. Thanks for asking. I worry, you know, um, I worry about everyone on our team, but I feel like <laughs> you're not the one on our team that I should be worried about. <laughs> no, I'm fine. But I was talking to my manager recently about her manager, and she was saying her manager has like just a wall of meetings on her Google Calendar. Like people just put meetings on your calendar they see you have a half hour of space between two meetings and they're like, great, I'm going to put a meeting in there. Oh yeah, visible and they think calendars and people putting meetings on your calendar without asking you is like, how dare you? No. <laughs> you can but just, they think you because just, you're remote, you can just, you can just go boom, them. boom, 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 boom. You know what I mean? Like, so then you have people just sitting at their managers, presumably sitting at their desk all day, just from one Zoom to the next Zoom. Like that's exhausting. 
Um, and I wonder, is that contributing to the breakdown of the middle manager? Also, are middle managers necessary? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, so, so there, are two, there are two things there. So I would say middle managers are definitely necessary. And <laughs> it's because you need a coach or you need a team captain or you need someone like uh, someone who is giving you feedback, someone who's yeah. giving you maybe a bit of encouragement, maybe a bit of direction. I think, you know, management consulting companies have made millions of dollars in cutting out the frozen middle. And there's little evidence that that has actually improved performance of companies. I think that's pretty, um, that's pretty short sighted. To your point about meetings, I think that the explosion of meetings, which has been accelerated by Zoom, is a really big problem. And when you look at one example is when you talk to companies that have instituted four-day work weeks, what they say is the only way to make it work is if you actually are much more disciplined about meetings. You uh, don't have, you have 30-minute meetings instead of 60-minute meetings. You have times in the week where there are no internal meetings so that people can actually focus on some other stuff that they need to move forward and not just talking to each other. And um, I think that we could all learn a lot from that. You know, maybe four-day work week is not going to work for every company, but uh, four days of meetings and one day without meetings, I think, is a really is a really good start. In that, at, at our company, at Charter, uh, we don't have any internal meetings on Fridays, um, and that I think is you know is is at the very least a starting point. That sounds like bliss. <laughs> Do you have the same issue though? maybe not as bad because a meeting is designed to sort of take up your full attention. But the switching back and forth between the people, you know, phoning you, calling you, slacking you, making it really hard to actually concentrate on one thing for more than like two minutes before you're distracted by something urgent. Is there a way of, of dealing with that? And I guess my other, my other question as someone who's never been a manager is like, do managers need time to sit down and think and be focused? Or is that is it their job to just, you know, switch from emergency to emergency? When you become a manager, you're you like are elevated to another level where you <laughs> you know, you don't need focused time, no bathroom breaks. It's it's really awesome, Felix. Uh you're, you know, smarter and more attractive instantly. Um well, Microsoft has done some interesting research here because they've been able to surveil people who use their products, including their own staff. And what they found is that since the pandemic started, the level of attention to meetings has dropped significantly. And they what basically what this means is that when people are in meetings, they're more likely to be working on something else than giving the meeting their mm -hmm. full attention. So that data suggests that the quality of meetings has been uh, has gone down and and it might be due to what you you know what you're citing Felix that there are all these information streams that are coming at you and managers are struggling to find time to like finish writing the email or um, or the memo or the presentation or just re reading something they need to have read by the next meeting that's coming at them do you think some of it's also, it's just uh, paranoia about FaceTime. Like if, if you're a manager and you can't see the people you're working 
for you, you know, the same way you can in an office, these kind of recurring standing catch-up meetings feel like a substitute because at least then you're staring at people on a screen. The, the like, research suggests pretty powerfully that a it's really important for a manager and someone who employed, who um, reports to them to have a one-on-one meeting once a week. It could be 15-minute meeting, but if you don't do that, there's there's a disconnect that grows between uh, the work and performance and the feedback, and um, that's really hard to bridge. And over time, results in challenges around engagement and retention, and and probably contributes to burnout. Yeah, for me, I can definitely say that the meetings I tune out of, and I will 100% admit to tuning out of Zoom meetings, but they're never the one-on-ones, right? It's the it's the massive meetings where there are 45 or 145 or 845 people all invited to the same Zoom call, and you're like, at this point, my attention is going to be de minimis. Yes, the one-on-one, it seems like the one meeting to keep and then get rid of all the other ones. Just send an email. I'll still read it. I will. Or what Slack, what companies do is agree as a company that you're going to erase all of your meetings for the coming week. And then you see how that goes. And then you start the next week and you put back on the meetings that you know you need, but maybe leave off some of the meetings and maybe leave off some of the people who were who are invited to meetings, but maybe actually aren't really required to be there and would do even better just to have a summary of what came out of the meeting uh, and not actually have to attend it. Zero, zero based budgeting, that. but for meetings. Yeah. Declare meeting amnesty. We should have a numbers round. Um, Emily, do you have a number? I do. Um... It's a little unusual number, but I'm just going with it because I need to get this. I need to talk about this. My number is seven. That is the number of days I have gone without coffee. Oh my God. Congratulations. It's been a ride, let me tell you. (laughs) Um, But I decided I could talk about it on Slate Money because I feel like coffee fuels the office culture and the work from home culture. Like it's a big deal. And it has been, it has been hard, Felix, but good. Do you, do you have a substitute? This is my calm tea. It's called like calm something. I don't You've know. You've given it's, up all, all caffeine. You're not doing Diet Coke instead. No, all caffeine, not even like black tea. Just And and to people thinking about doing this, I would say don't. I would say <laughs> gradually wean yourself off caffeine because going cold turkey after like a long, long, long time of having coffee every day, like since I was, I don't know, like 20, um, is your brain kind of freaks out, but I'm fine. Don't worry. Don't worry about me. Are you having headaches? I, I have a headache right now as we speak. It's just constant. It's fine. And so why are you... But I had to get off Why it. are you doing it? Because I was feeling really like crazy, like not crazy, but like as I guess I'm, I'm doing what Kevin said is more common or what you guys said is more common in talking about my feelings publicly, but... <laughs> I was feeling like super anxious and like having trouble, like taking a breath. And um, I even went to the doctor and she was like, do you drink coffee? And I was like, of course. (laughs) And she's maybe don't. And I was like, oh, okay. And now I I do feel a lot more calm. And I don't think it's from the calm tea. It's from just not having all that coffee. You know? All right. Um, 
My number is 4.6 billion, which is the official net asset of the, the number of dollars in assets controlled and owned by something called the Glenstone Foundation in Maryland. Um, Kevin, do you know what the Glenstone Foundation is? I don't. Um, have you ever heard of a billionaire called Mitchell Rails? Nope, he's not on my billionaire list. So he's <laughs> Mitchell Rails is this industrialist who's a billionaire who has an amazing art collection, and he turned his art collection into a museum in Maryland, which you can go to. It's not easy. It sells out pretty quickly, but it's readmission. And there was this big Bloomberg story about how it, the assets of the Glenstone Foundation are now $4.6 billion, which is the same as the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And they're like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Um, and Emily's, like, reaction, I could, it was, like, pulling back and frowning and saying, what? How is that possible? That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but what the Bloomberg story didn't mention, and I feel like and it's, it's worth, like, just the reason why this is my number, is that... The assets of the Glenstone Foundation include all of the art. They capitalize the art. So if he has a $100 million Rothko in his foundation, that's on like the books of the foundation as being worth $100 million. The Metropolitan Museum holds all of its art at a carrying value of zero, right? They're like, this is not for sale. This is just part of like the trust that we've been given. Our job is to look after the artists, not to value the art. And so they don't value it. This explains all of the difference, right? You can't, this is not an apples to apples comparison. Um, and it's very important to, when you're looking at museums in particular, to ask, do you capitalize? The overwhelming majority of them do not. But every so often you'll see a very large number and you'll be like, ah, but are you capitalizing your art? <laughs> why does that matter why, why, why does that it probably doesn't matter <laughs> oh no <laughs> but it does yeah it, at least it stops people starting to talk about like can you believe that this tiny little museum in maryland has the same you know endowment size as the met um elizabeth do you have a number uh yeah my number is 15 million and that is the amount of big league chew a company called ford gum sold last year now, Felix, do you know what Big League Chew is? I have never like heard. Wait, I feel like I did see Big League Chew cross my radar screen because it's like owned by someone who's famous or something else. Well, so Big League Chew is like shredded bubble gum that's designed to look like chewing tobacco, and it was made famous in the 80s by baseball players. So apparently it was sort of invented by Oscar-nominated director Todd Field, who did Tar, uh, when he was a bat boy for a Portland minor league baseball team because he was trying to, you know, impress the baseball players or something. And so he shredded up a bunch of licorice and put it in a pouch. And then his mom decided that this was potentially a commercial idea. So just for comparison, Tar grows $6.7 million last, last year. year. So Wait, someone this asked major... Field. Or sorry, yeah, total, Wait, total. 6.7 million is the total gross of Tar? I feel it has to have made more than that. Whoa, that's tiny. That should have been your, your, <laughs> your number right there. I could have it wrong. It might be last year. But the point being, uh, you know, 15 million 
in revenue for Big League Chew, <laughs> 6.7 for Tar. Someone asked Field if he regretted That's an amazing story. actually having made money off of Big League Chew, and he said, no, it would have ruined him. So You're absolutely, I, ju- I just looked this up on- <laughs> There would be no Tar. I, I just looked this up on Box Office Mojo. Total domestic gross for Tar is 6.7 million. I would have guessed like literally 10x that. See, but you're this very specific Venn diagram where you've heard of tar, but not big league chew, whereas the rest of America, it's flipped. <laughs> That's true. I, I have, I, I, not only that, I have seen tar in a movie theater and I have, to my knowledge, never either seen or tasted big league, big league chew. It's pretty cool. Um, Kevin, what's your number? My number is 300%. And this is the return to investors in roughly 1603 uh, in the first voyage of the East India Company. I've been reading a history of the corporation, um, and this was the, the East India Company was one of the most prominent joint stock companies. It was established under the charter of Queen Elizabeth I on New Year's Eve, uh, 1600, and they had this crazily bad first voyage where the ships nearly sank. 182 men died, um, but they still returned to investors 300% returns. Uh, people was, that, was there opium wow. involved, or was that later? There was no opi- opium that I'm aware of, but what they did do is that they found that there was a Portuguese. Uh, ship that was loaded with awesome goods from Indonesia, I think, and they uh, they they were textiles from uh, India, and they set off and they actually captured it. So the return was large. It was privateering. It was basically privateering that uh, that was responsible for this auspicious start. So the Queen, it was just pirates. I thought that East. They were just pirates. Like, a privateer is a polite name for a pirate, okay. Emily. We like to use the polite word around. <laughs> so the Queen in 1600 gave this charter to roughly 200 men in London for exclusive trading rights for the majority of the earth. And that was the East India Company. It's, it is an ama- the, the history of the East India Company is absolutely amazing. But this is great. We, um, what's the book you're reading? The book is called For Profit by William Magnuson, A History of Corporations. Amazing. Um, well, okay, I think that's it for this week. Uh, unless you are fabulous enough to be a Slate Plus listener, I have a question for Kevin about Netflix. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show. Thanks. This is great. And thanks to our two producers who've managed to put the show together this week. Not only Anna Phillips, but also Patrick Ford. You guys are amazing, and we'll be back next week with more Slate Money. <laughs> <laughs>